Previously on Texas Twiggy. The second good thing to come out of Popeye is just that, which we will come back to a little later down the line. Shelley's debut as producer and the beginning of an era, nay, eras, fairy tale theater. Next episode, we'll be diving into The Shining. Let's put ourselves in Wendy's shoes for a moment. You are in a troubled marriage. Your husband has dislocated your son's shoulder, maybe even laid a hand on you once or twice. You are trying to hold it together for your kid, who seems to be having paranoid delusions and is insisting that there's a small man living in the back of his mouth. Your husband takes a job caring for a big, huge resort in the mountains, which gives you a little hope. Maybe this is what your marriage needs. So you agree, schlep your husband and son up this mountain to this incredibly foreboding hotel, where your husband's new employer casually mentions a grisly murder had occurred in a situation nearly identical to yours. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran a It's fine, you assure yourself. And you and the family set off. He killed his family with an axe. You all settle into this huge, empty, echoing, haunted hotel and try to forget your myriad family issues. Meanwhile, your husband is a writer who neglects each and every single duty he has as a caretaker, so you're keeping the hotel clean and functioning. And then your husband's drinking problem rears its head. Your son develops bruises around his neck. You're hearing voices and imagining parties that aren't there. You find some skeletons, and eventually your husband is trying to kill your son. We're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. And then... Whether you don't hear me typing, whatever the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't... You're snowed in. You, your rapidly deteriorating abusive husband, your psychic son, and the ghosts of this haunted hotel are all alone, isolated. So yeah, I get a little wound up about that Razzie nomination. Once upon a time in a magical kingdom called Hollywood, there lived a fair maiden named Shelley Duval who loved fairy tales. Most of all, she wanted to recreate the fairy tales for television and have them look just like the pictures in the books. Three years and 26 fairy tales later, Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theatre is doing well on the Showtime Pay Television Network, and she is about to launch a new series called Shelley Duvall's Tall Tales. This past year's production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves won a Peabody Award. The shows have been translated into several other languages, and they are also available on video cassettes. It took two years for Duvall, who had never produced before, to put it all together. I didn't want to make the fairy tales for children, she says. They're very sophisticated and adult. It has been a labour of love for me.
fairy tale theater marked the beginning of Shelley's career in producing and directing. It ran for six seasons from 1982 to 1987, and it completely revolutionized cable television. Now, I was born in 2000. By the time I was old enough to be watching TV, the idea of original cable programming was well established. Just like I've never taken a bottle of liquid over three and a half ounces on an airplane or rolled down a car window using a hand crank, I've never experienced, say, HBO as home box office or Showtime having only movies. But that's how it was for decades and decades. From its inception in the late 1940s until the early 1980s, cable TV carried FM radio stations, local programming, specials, and movies. The concept of an original series for cable television had never seen the light of day. That is, until Shelley Duvall walked into the Showtime offices with a tote bag of fairy tale books and her signature warm smile. She tells Terry Gross in a 1992 NPR interview. And I put lots of my antique illustrated books into two big cloth bags, and I went walking in the door of Showtime and said, here's what I want to do. And... Um, they said yes. <laughs> it was amazing to me, too. I mean, boy, they're trusting olive oil as a producer. But, um, and I'd never produced anything before, but I did have uh, contacts with a lot of celebrities, um, luckily, and that was as a result of my acting career. That's right. All of your favorite original TV programming, that is, any shows created for a cable network, so everything from Keeping Up with the Kardashians to SpongeBob to Chopped to Monday Night Baseball, were made possible in part by Shelley herself. But fairy tale theater isn't just important because it revolutionized cable television. The show itself is good. Really, really good. This classic series is filled with wonderful stars and magical stories. Stories your children will love at least as much as you do. First of all, everyone, and I mean everyone, was on it. It started out with Shelley's celebrity friends, but as the show went on, the upper crust of 1980s Hollywood began blowing up Shelley's phone, hoping for a spot on the show. Joan Collins and Joan Collins in Hansel and Gretel. Gregory Hines and Ben Vereen strut their stuff in Puss in Boots, proving that clothes make the <clears throat> cat. The very first episode, in fact, features Robin Williams as a frog in a green-painted Lycra bodysuit and Terry Garr as a princess in the Brothers Grimm's The Frog Prince. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's tale about a princess who finds happiness by keeping her promise to a frog, the Frog Prince. It was a low-budget show. Like, the green screen is egregiously bad, even for the 80s, and there are shots where you can just full-on see crew's hands holding objects that are supposed to be levitating. The budget was $400,000 an episode, which is just over a million bucks in today's money. Which sounds like a lot, but I promise that in the scheme of TV production, it's next to nothing. For reference, Game of Thrones pushes a $15 million an episode budget, and even CSI Miami was $3.5 million an episode in 2002, almost $5.5 million per episode in today's money. So the point is, fairy tale theater was not spending the big bucks. 
but Shelley still got a veritable who's who of Hollywood legends on every part of production. Some people say it's because she was just that damn charming, but I think it has more to do with the fact that Shelley just made friends with everyone. And that includes Hollywood bigwigs. There are episodes directed by Tim Burton, Francis Ford Coppola, and Emil Artelino, and every single one has at least two big-name celebrities. And but also, like, stars of the 80s. Who were some which, of those guests? I mean, Liza Minnelli, Carrie Fisher, Robin Williams, Terry Garr, Leslie Ann Warren. It's, it's a, a queer Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters, Christopher Reeve. Yeah. That's Rob Schneider from a podcast called Gay Card Revoked, listing just some of the 80s superstars who were on fairytale theater. We'll come back to Gay Card Revoked in a little bit. The premise of fairytale theater is pretty simple. Each episode retells a beloved fairy tale, many of them Brothers Grimm tales, with character acting and sets that somehow simultaneously look like they were built by a Hollywood production studio and an extraordinarily fastidious children's book illustrator. And there's truth to that, actually. Each episode was modeled after the aesthetics of a famous artist. Goldilocks and the Three Bears, for example, is after Norman Rockwell. Rapunzel is after Klimt, Beauty and the Beast after Cocteau. You can see it in the costumes, in the set design, on the VHS and DVD jackets of certain releases. You can even hear it in the music, sort of. Or maybe that's just me. And it's entirely Shelley. These ideas, this production, the end-to-end comprehensive adaptation of the original Brothers Grimm stories, it's all, like you heard at the top, a labor of love for her. Something I've neglected to mention thus far is Shelley's insatiable lust for fairy tales. She began collecting fairy tale first editions in her adolescence and became entranced by the Brothers Grimm and children's stories. Here's NPR again. Shortly after playing Olive Oil in Popeye, Duval started producing children's shows for cable TV, and ever since then she spent more time behind the camera than in front of it. I asked Shelley Duval how she convinced cable executives to give her a series when she had no experience as a producer. I was reading The Frog Prince one day and thought that Robin Williams would just make a great frog. That was on the set of Popeye, where, while the rest of the cast and crew balded their nasal canals, Shelley read fairy tale books. She got the idea for her series, Fairy Tale Theater, on that set in Malta and asked Robin if he would want to star in the very first episode. And I talked to Robin about it, and he said, oh, I'd love that. That'd be great. I'd love to play the frog. And when I got back to Los Angeles, I just went through my books of fairy tales and selected what actors would be great for the parts. So um, I made out a list of, you know, my wish list of different fairy tales and the... um, cast of actors that I would like to have in them. My favorite episode has got to be that one, The Frog Prince with Robin Williams and Terry Garr, which sees by its 33rd minute one of the most insane scenes I have ever witnessed in a children's show. There's this scene where... Yeah, he's wearing this, like, green bodysuit. Robin Williams dressed in a dark green bodysuit. But this bodysuit is, like, painted green. Like, I don't understand why they didn't just give the man a green bodysuit. Is singing in Italian. Oh my god. And I am not kidding you, he's... Now he's rubbing his entire body with this enormous garlic clove? And then, a little later... Oh, yep. Yep, they're, they're, just, they're just sneezing on each other now. This human chef who's confused the frog prince with the frog that's to be cooked for dinner 
is sneezing all over a green screened in Robin Williams and Robin is still dancing and oh geez he's doing actual ballet is that a pepper shaker a little pepper The show has heart, and it does a remarkable job of letting each director, actor, and character shine in their respective episode. I have only seen the show as an adult. In fact, I watched it for the first time during research for the podcast. But I, nearly 22 at this point, was fully engrossed and completely entertained. There's something in the absurdity, the almost macabre folly that inevitably ends up manifesting when you remake live-action children's stories from the 1800s that makes fairy tale theater special. It has Shelley's touch. Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. Welcome to Fairy Tale Theater. For centuries, storytellers have spun their tales of magic and enchantment for the young at heart. Some are funny, some are romantic, some are scary, and some, well, have a little bit of everything in them. That's what I like so much about fairy tales. I have all my life. And that's why I'm so happy to have the opportunity to present fairy tale theater. Shelley told the Sun Sentinel in 1985 that fairy tale theater was not intended for children. That's what you heard in the beginning. She said, I don't want to make the fairy tales for children. They're very sophisticated and adult. The marriage of innocent children's content with something slightly darker in service of a moral or a message isn't new, of course. I'd honestly argue that the whole fairy tale with a twist thing is really played out. But that's what I love about fairy tale theater. There are no twists, really. Nothing is set in modern times or gender bent or really altered from their original, unsanitized, non Disneyfied versions. True to Shelley's love of the fairy tales, it preserves their essence and their core, assigning character actors to characters, complete with voices and mannerisms. It reminds me of the beloved film The Princess Bride, in a way, except not quite as self-conscious. You can tell that Shelley isn't satirizing or criticizing these tales. She's just telling them. Well, she's showing them. And aside from fairy tale theater being one of the first pieces of original cable programming and the spawn of three more episodic fairy tale series by Shelley, and the source of some of the best out of context audio clips I have ever had the pleasure of saving. Thank God for that. He's such a macho meat face. It's also really gay. That's right, folks. Fairy tale theater is queer canon. When I first started doing research for Texas Twiggy, I was noticing a trend. Every person I found who was a fairy tale theater fan, hell, most people I found who were Shelley fans at all, were gay men in their late 20s and early 30s. Something about fairy tale theater drew in queer and questioning children when it aired in the 80s, and something about it has kept most of them fans nearly three decades later. I wanted to know why this trend was happening. Yeah. Hi, my name is Wyatt Fenner. I he, him. I am an actor and I live in Manhattan, New York City. So I did what anybody would do. Gay. A Boolean search for gay and fairy tale theater. theater. 
And that was how I found Wyatt Fenner on an episode of a wonderful indie podcast called Gay Card Revoked. Their information will be in the show notes. Go check them out. Where not only was he talking about just that, but he was also... I grew up in Virginia, uh, just in the Washington, D.C. area, okay. uh, Arlington, yeah. and uh, From my hometown, and went to my middle school, and my rival high school, and then my rival college. I got into UVA, and I, I went to USC. So I reached out. Hi, Wyatt. My name is Emma Lehman, and I'm a UCLA undergrad. And asked him if he'd want to come on Texas Twiggy and talk about this neat gay show. In a very, very insane coincidence... So we met over Zoom to talk about being gay, fairytale theater, childhood socialization, Mandy Patinkin, and the blockbuster video on Lee Highway. A theme that I found researching for this podcast is the first several interviews I had about Shelley Duvall and a lot of the people I found who knew Shelley Duvall were specifically gay men in their like late 20s and early 30s. It was this shared experience of fairy tale theater having been really formative. But before, you know, before we talk about it, I want to can you kind of explain what it means when I or you say the show is gay for the con- or the concept of a, of a queer canon? Yeah, um well I, as a cis gay man, would say it's a gay show because of how it appeals to me specifically in, and who I was when I was growing up. And I think that's one facet of it. And then a- another aspect of it is how it's in the queer canon, which I think applies to all sorts of people who are represented within our larger, the larger umbrella of our queer community. Um, and so I guess I would say, as a young gay boy, I appreciated fairy tale theater because it gave me the opportunity to see a shift in my own paradigm. A lot of times when I would be experiencing stories or um, just even socializing as a little kid, it was about, you know, like the protagonist's perspective or my own perspective. And fairy tale theater was one of the first forms of media that showed me that like there is a valid way of seeing things from every position within an argument. And because Shelley Duvall and her collaborators really developed every single character within these well-known stories, it was never just about the Little Mermaid's ideas about what was going on, but it was these fully realized ensembles of characters who had different desires and different interests and different ways of approaching a circumstance. And I remember when I was watching that, recognizing in myself, you know, I can see how it would help me to um, try to understand where other people are coming from. Fairy tale theater expanded his worldview, he explained, and let him see that not only is it okay to be different, but that those who express themselves differently can participate in society and contribute something special. And so as a young gay guy, I was able to appreciate suddenly things that had primarily been... Um, uncomfortable issues for me. Like I was no longer really bothered by the fact that I didn't want to play flag football at recess. I was more just like, oh, well, that happens to be the way that those kids are into spending their time off. And I'll, you know, play pretend with whoever's interested in that. Um, But it, it liberated me in that sense. 
And it gave me, I think, one of my first opportunities to really recognize that like all perspectives can be seen as valid. And if you're able to approach a circumstance with that awareness, you're, you're going to help the circumstance rather than put up a wall and say like, no, it's my way or the highway. And, and visually too, like it's such a, it's such a work of art, honestly. And I think that that's kind of underappreciated too. We talked about the beauty of the production of the show, from its costumes to its set design, to its colors and textures and music. And how, in the forests which liberally pepper our hometown of suburban Virginia, fairy tale theater took on a life of its own. Arlington, where we grew up, is naturally a very beautiful place. And the, the visual and the fantastical aspect of the story itself, in a whole other way, I remember it just sort of broke open my imagination. You know, I would go down by the Potomac River, through the woods. I would go spend time in forests. I remember these little forests, something I haven't seen in years now since moving to LA, with tall oak trees and flowering dogwoods and burbling brooks. And I would just see the potential for magic everywhere. And that was really, really exciting to me. And it still is something that I, you know, I feel comfortable when I'm out in nature. We all do. But as a very young person, it gave me this fantastic perspective that I was really into applying to everything. And I think that that is kind of queer. You know, it's it's odd. It's like, what what sort of strange things could be happening if there was a family of magical people who lived inside this tree or underneath that bush? And like, what if this rock started talking to me? Like, that sort of playtime with ourselves when we're very young is, to me, an introduction to what it is to sort of open yourself up to, I think, in a positive sense, the oddities of the world. And some would say that is what it is to be queer, is to be, you know, other and and odd and, and uh, different. And do you feel like you carried what fairy tale theater taught you into other areas of your life as a kid? Or was it only later that you that you realized their importance? Even as early as preschool, in like preschool and kindergarten and first grade and second grade, I remember, uh, you know, like once or twice a week, we would go down to the music room and just sing, you know, basic sort of like nursery rhymes put to music. For me, what was formative was like, this is a time where you get to express yourself in a way that is not, you know, like sitting, sitting in class and raising your hand. And what we were learning as we were being socialized and taught like how to be students. Uh, it was the one time of day where we were really engaging with our, our bodies by, you know, like breathing and singing and, um, and it wasn't PE. So it didn't relate to like catch this ball mm-hmm. or else you're doing it wrong. So it was that, and it was art class, you know, and painting and those things. And then my little pony. I mean, I just like loved, loved, loved the TV show, my little pony. And uh, it was on right after GI Joe. So my my older my two older brothers 
loved GI Joe and I would sit with them through that. And then they would end at my little pony would start and I would just sit there and just eat it up. Similarly to fairy tale theater, because it was just this like fantasy landscape, you know, the colors and the expression of everything was, it was either like of dire importance. Someone was going to like be in trouble or get hurt, or it was like so sweet. Like we're going to have the best ice cream sundae. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I didn't, know this when I when I started out on this episode but she based Shelley based each episode on a different illustrator so there's you can kind of see that influence and it's it's interesting too because the and you talked about this on on the other podcast as well like it really runs the gamut in terms of set dressing and set quality and totally and there's I don't know if you've seen the princess bride but I feel like oh yeah 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 I feel like it's it's Mandy Patinkin was probably one of my first crushes my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Well, I mean, what a man, right? <laughs> but like the the costume design and the set design on that movie, I think of as being kind of similar to fairy tale theater. In there's that like artistic painterly aspect to it that works for both children and adults because. You know, as a kid, you don't really notice that it's any different from something that's just supposed to look like, you know, the sky or mountains or whatever. And then as an adult, it's clearly a painting enough that you understand that element of it. And you understand for in fairytale theater's case, like, oh, wow, that looks like Klimt. And yeah, I think that's why Princess Bride um, and fairytale theater, why it works for children and for adults. You can see his artwork. You're like, oh. oh oh my God, like it's, it's these paintings realized in like the geometry of the spaces and the color and the texture of the hair. It's just like, it's this specific artist's expression of humanity through this fairy tale. It's really wild and incredibly cool. And then like one of my favorite episodes of all, like when I was a kid, I had no idea who Cocteau was, but the Beauty and the Beast episode is a remake of Cocteau's La Belle et la Bête. And um, Roger Vadim, who's a French director, just basically like almost frame by frame recreated Cocteau's film version of Beauty and the Beast and just like condensed it a little bit. But there's all sorts of visual things that Cocteau used in his version that then Vadim was like, okay, now little kids can see this and understand how magic and fantasy and the unseen forces that are at work in the world around us all the time can be represented on film by arms holding candlesticks, et cetera. Um, And then when you see that as an adult, you're like, this is Cocteau. Like, this is that movie. Have you seen any of Shelley's other children's programming specifically? When I was a kid, I remember seeing around Halloween time, there was like a a horror story series that she did. Nightmare classics, yeah. See, I don't... And I can't remember as well because there were so many of them. And when I was growing up in Arlington, on Lee Highway, there was a, a blockbuster video and they had all of them. I remember this blockbuster too, nestled between a CVS and an auto parts store with walls and walls of DVDs and VHS tapes and a candy wall right by the register, which I was never allowed to touch. I'm not bitter. And they had them in the original video cassette cases, with, which all had these really beautiful covers. And like they were, every single one was different and every single cover related to the artwork that inspired the episode. So I was like so into the fairy tale ones and there was such a wealth of them, you know, that I, I don't remember really getting into the, what was it called? A nightmare Anthology? Nightmare Classics. 
Nightmare Classics. It sounds horrifying, but yeah. it's also, I'm sure it was wonderfully done. You know, she's such a fascinating mind and creature and so in touch with nature and therefore so in touch with humanity. Totally. And I think something else that she does really well is kind of incorporating a moral into the story without it being like ham-fisted. Like she, she really, at the end of all of these fairy tale theater episodes, there's a moral, there's something that you've learned. It's never forced in, you know? And I think that has to do partially with the fact that she followed the original tales so closely, which I really like about it. I think that she really stayed true to the fairy tales in a way that allowed the moral to shine through in a very organic way, the way that it does with the original tales. And I really appreciate that about fairy tale theater. To your point, you know, like the focus of each of the stories and what I think was really like beautifully informative, every single one of the stories in its original form had some sort of moral. And every single one of her episodes is very much based on the ideas that are important about um, how it is that we can do right. You say on Gay Card Revoke that Pinocchio is the gayest episode. And I want to I want to know, like, you know, what why you think that and and maybe what your favorite episode is, too. There's so much in that specific episode that when you look at, you're like, yeah, no, that's the gay experience. (laughs) That's the the young gay boy's experience. Who becomes a real alive boy. Pinocchio. He he sets out into the world and he's going to be the perfect little boy. And then he runs into some like more experienced boys who teach him how to do things that aren't necessarily so great for him. And then he learns his lesson and actually becomes a real person, to me at least, uh, representative of the gay experience because I came out when I was in my junior and senior year of high school. But then I was still kind of just like a high school student. I wasn't really experiencing like life as a gay man yet. Then I went to school and in Los Angeles, I spent a few years kind of moving through my own arrested development and feeling like a, you know, like a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or like whatever age you are when you start to recognize romantic feelings. I am not a gay man. I am, in fact, a straight woman. But I had a similar experience myself. And I understand the impact of media on our coming of age, our coming into ourselves, our formation of identity when it seems that everyone else has already stepped into a realized sense of self. For Wyatt, that media was Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater. But I was in my 20s, so it was like, and I think all gay guys to a degree go through that. And as a result of being in my 20s and kind of dealing with things that I you know, think a lot of heterosexual people deal with earlier in their life, there was an awkwardness you just had to learn how to do it and i just feel like that's like kind of a classic way to say like yeah you know like you go through your growing pains and then hopefully you learn from those and you and you grow into like the the person you're supposed to be once you get over that arrested development yeah um and then also like that episode is it's just queer like paul rubens is just blessedly and innately strange and it just it's quite fey but really like all of them are open to a lot of queer appreciation so on the point of um of you know the color and then the set dressing and everything do you think that fairy tale theater is camp in the highest regard for the unseasoned camp refers to a style whose appeal is found in its absurdity its loudness and its extreme over-the-top nature 
It's like kitsch. It came to prominence in 1964 when Susan Sontag wrote her essay Notes on Camp, which said key elements were frivolity and shocking excess. Have you ever gone to a drag show? Hell, have you ever seen RuPaul's Drag Race? That's camp. Because I think that camp, it's a combination of an enormous appreciation and, and respect, as well as an irreverence that honors its subject so fully and so unabashedly can be considered camp. Fairy tale theater is what it intends to be. And it, it, it has an awareness and a uh, presence of, of spirit and heart throughout, which is, you know, you're just like, I don't know where we are when she's introducing the episodes, but we're somewhere that's not today, right now. And then the episode starts and it's never revisited. And you're like, well, that was a great palate cleanser from my day today. And now I'm fully like in the cave with the genie or wherever she, you know, takes you on the episode. We talked for a bit more about the show, growing up in Arlington and housing prices in LA and New York. Eventually we found our way as many of these conversations have tended to do into talking about Shelley. One of the reasons that I think that the show is so inspiring and exciting is the fact that Shelley Duvall was the person who was so magnetic and charismatic that obviously these people who came to be a part of her show wanted to be around her. And I think creating work that you love with people that you love that can inspire others, like that's, I don't care what you do with your life, like that's the point. And this series is that to a T because she had this idea that she wanted to fulfill and so she brought her friends in to do it. My hope always in, in any art that I create and any project that I'm a part of is that I'm able to help people or influence people in a positive way that maybe like unexpectedly something that I've done can occur to someone that makes them feel good or have a different idea about something that's difficult for them and she has so powerfully done that for so many people that I think that the the celebration of her and the acknowledgement of the good that she's done is so important. And I'm really happy to know that you're doing it because I'm sure she knows how impactful she's been, but it's important for people to continue to hear that and to continue to be reminded like... How this woman's art and presence and creations... You made a very, very important positive effect on my life. Helped form a generation of young people, especially young queer people, into well-rounded and self-accepting adults. And you showed me things that at the time I wasn't yet aware of my ability to bring into my life. So wherever it is that she is hopefully very happily right now, it's still worthwhile to say like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you are so powerful because people need to be told when we appreciate them. And as the interview wrapped up, right as I went for the stop record button on my Zoom screen, Wyatt had one thing to add. One thing that I will say that probably doesn't need to be a part of the podcast, but there, there, there's a, a, a family of pigeons that roosted in like the front of our apartment building. And I was like, initially I was so annoyed and just angry. But then thinking of Shelly, I was like, well, they're just cute little family. They're just living their life up there because she's such a loving person and she, you know, loves animals so much that it completely allowed me to be like, oh, they're good. They're cute little pigeons. 
it's fine. That's wonderful. And I can can see her saying that in her voice, too. I can hear it. Yeah, totally. They're just a little family. (laughs) They're just a little family of pigeons making their little pigeon tea and going to bed. (laughs) That's just one way Shelley's work lives on. Tolerance to the humanity of a little pigeon family roosting on the window of Wyatt Fenner's apartment in Manhattan, New York City. Texas Twiggy is reported, narrated, and produced by me, Emma Lehman. Our music is created and mixed by Olivia Springberg. Our research consultant is Sarah Lukowski. Special thanks to Avery Erskine for transcribing interviews, giving notes on endless drafts, and proofreading scripts. Special thanks to David Dieci for the background music for this episode, which is a piano cover of Shelley and Harry Nielsen's He Needs Me from the Popeye movie. Thank you to Rob and Robbie of GCR for letting me clip their podcast and poach their interviewee. And of course, thank you to Wyatt Fenner for sharing his experiences and geeking out about the magic of Shelley and fairy tale theater with me. And to the pigeons on Wyatt's apartment, may your little family flourish in peace. Thank you to my patrons, Kathleen Axe, Holly, Justine Springberg, Liz Wheeler, Dwayne Lehman, Kelly Alasser, Dan Travis, Jose Armenta, Kavid Dacity, Sharon, Xavier Hamill, Ken Lehman, Sarah Elizabeth, and Sophia Pulido. Don't forget to support the show at patreon.com slash Twiggy, and join me next week. <laughs>